This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. This episode is for the end of April 2018. My name is David Dalton. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. Welcome. It's great to be seen, David. First of all, I want to apologize to our listeners. A couple of weeks ago, I set the release date wrong on our most recent episode, and it appeared, and then it disappeared, and then it appeared again a week later. It was a pure mistake on my part. I apologize for the confusion. I run a small business, and sometimes in the midst of staying on top of a lot of details, the execution gets all mixed up. So I appreciate your understanding and patience, and I will make sure to do better in the future. Thank you. On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. First of all, we'll be talking about Pope Francis' recent apostolic exhortation, Gaudete et Exalte, Rejoice and Be Glad. Next, it's just the signs of the times. I mean, as we're recording this, this is the day that Scooter Libby was pardoned. The FBI has executed a search warrant on the law offices of Michael Cohen, who's President Donald Trump's personal attorney. We've just had the Senate hearings of Mark Zuckerberg. There's a lot to talk about, just how the world is falling apart around our ears. And since this is our last episode of the season, in segment three, we'll do a recap of the year and look ahead to what comes next. We also have special bonus segments for all you friends of Frank who support the show by donating each month on Patreon. Every couple of weeks, we add a bit of bonus audio or extended discussion or interview. And if you'd like to hear them, you can. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. I have right next to me, in fact, a bag of books Dan just brought to me that have been signed and will be going out in the next few days in the mail to all of our book-level Patreon supporters. So thank you for that. Before we get started, we also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. And we want to give a final shout-out to our seasoned supporters, Liturgical Press and Franciscan Media. Woo-woo! They help to make this show possible. Please show them your support. Let them know that you appreciate it. Thank you. Dan, how have you been? 
David, I've been well. I'm glad to see that you got the note requiring you to read an apology as scripted by our attorneys for the snafu of last week. I need to say part of how I've been this past week involves that that incident, which was not a big deal. And to our listeners who might have been confused, I've actually not heard many people all that worked up. In fact, I was on the phone with somebody this afternoon who said to me, I was actually glad that it came in early because I was on this long trip and I looked at my phone. I wasn't expecting it. And it's a surprise. It was here. And it had already downloaded. So that's the way it works. But I I happened upon that way late as I was getting ready for bed when I was in the United Kingdom last week. I was in the UK for a Thomas Merton conference. It's a conference that takes place every two years. And it takes place on the campus of his boarding school in Oakham in County Rutland in the East Midlands of England. It's a lovely event. It's a pretty small conference compared to the conference that happens on the alternate year, on the even years, which typically takes place in North America. And that conference usually brings three, four, sometimes as many as 500 people. This one usually hovers around 100 or just a little less than that. So it's a more intimate gathering, but it allows for European scholars. So there were people typically from Poland and Spain, Scotland, and many from England and Ireland and from Hungary, and usually with some Italians that show up. What's pretty neat about that is there are so many people in, in so many different languages that study Thomas Merton, the late Trappist monk who died 50 years ago this year. And Merton's a, he's, he's an interesting character because he's both a spiritual figure and writer, a, th- a theologian uh, of a sort, a poet, an artist. And so he's viewed through many different lenses, including by American studies scholars in Europe. And so some people have done dissertations and written books on his poetry. They've written books on him as a literary person and figure. So it's very cool to have that kind of mixture of, of thought. In fact, next week on Things Not Seen, I'm going to be interviewing an author who wrote a book called The Monk's Record Player, which looks at how Bob Dylan influenced Thomas Merton. And so that'll be coming out in the next month on Things Not Seen. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Merton was, he was incredible. So that's definitely something to listen to. He was a friend of a person who's kind of a muse for me, Ralph Eugene Meatyard, oh, yeah. the, the photographer. Yeah. So, do you have his book of uh, photographs? I do. And, that's great. And I actually, back when I was a singer-songwriter, I wrote a, I wrote a song about Meatyard and Merton plays into one of the verses of that song. That's so interesting. Yeah, I love that collection of his photographs. You know, it also shows the kind of circles of people that Merton was connected with, you know, the the Joan Baez's. Denise Levertoff, Wendell Berry. It's just an incredible <laughs> group of people. So, yeah. So, how are you? Well, I've been doing well. We had family in visiting for the week of Easter. So, basically, beginning with Easter and going that entire week because both of my children were on spring break. And it, we just have a lovely time when my wife's parents are in town with us. So, that was a joy. I've been very busy. I, I think that I can now announce this because we've gone through all the kind of hoops that we need to go through to make sure that it's legitimate. But I'm happy to announce that starting in the summer, I'll be beginning to produce a podcast for Commonweal Magazine. Cool. And and so that's going to be launching in the fall, and we're going to do a pilot run, it sounds like, of six episodes and see how it goes. But I'm very excited about that. I'll be meeting with the staff in early May, and I think they're excited too. And so that'll be good. Writing continues to go well. Yeah, just everything is good. I'm sad right now that this podcast series is coming to a brief hiatus. But one of the things that I think we want to announce is that we're not going to be gone, gone over the summer. So we'll talk a little bit more about that, but we're planning planning some things, particularly for for the Patreon supporters. There'll be some special things for you over the next couple of months. 
Well, let's go ahead and jump into a topic that I know is of great interest to you because you were tweeting a storm about this, and there's a lot to talk about this, but this is the the new apostolic exhortation from Pope Francis called Rejoice and Be Glad. I'm going to butcher the Latin, but Gaudete ex, et exulte? Yeah, pretty close. Gaudete exulte. Okay. Exultante. See, see I'm, I'm goofing it up, too. There okay. Are, there are a lot of Latin syllables in there. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's a very exciting document. Uh, as I mentioned, because I was in England for this conference, I was actually an hour behind Rome time in London at London Heathrow when this document actually was officially released. And so I was able to download it off the Vatican website and read it on the plane. And it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Pope Francis's writing. And, you know, I think as we've, we've shared on the show before, for those who aren't as familiar with these magisterial texts, it's not that Pope Francis is by himself in some kind of study typing this thing out and, and doing all the work himself. He usually has consultants and officials and experts who contribute information and, and offer drafts at various stages. At the end, he signs off on it. I mean, it is his, it's his teaching. It's his document. But people that he's consulted or whoever he's, he's had around him and his own contributions, uh, his own tone in these uh, documents has been very approachable. One of the things that people might find nice about Rejoice and Be Glad is that it's short. It's not a very long text. It's about 50 pages? It's about 50 pages. You know, it varies because of the different formatting. So if you get, depending on the publisher, depending on if you print right from the website, the Vatican website, for instance, their PDF is double-spaced and everything. The way that the documents, official documentation of the, the Vatican isn't in pages, but in paragraph numbers. And so there are 177 paragraphs, but they are relatively short. They're concise. So yeah, about 40, somewhere between 45, 50, 55 pages in that range. But you could read it in an hour or two. And it's worth going back to. It's five chapters, and we can talk more about it. But I, the first thing I have to say before we discuss anything more about this is that I highly recommend and encourage people to read it. You will not be disappointed. Well, and one of the things that I'm aware of is that We've seen in the reaction to it, and I've been able to read portions of it. I haven't been able to read yet the whole thing. But, for example, Father James Martin was tweeting and posting on Facebook that he found this to be – he is he's written books on the lives of the saints, but he ha- – and, and so he's used to people sort of writing – on holiness and being reflective on holiness. And he says that he found this to be one of the clearest documents that he has encountered about the subject of holiness. The other thing that is notable about this is, once again, the reaction of some of the, and I'm air quoting here, the traditionalists who see this not as a call to holiness, but rather a poke in the eye to certain traditional forms of worship or certain sacred cows, for want of a better term. And so those are all things that we can kind of dig into. But in particular, and I've got it up and I'm sort of looking at it here on the web, uh, as we look at this, one of the things that strikes me first of all about the document is how when Pope Francis is talking about holiness, one of the very first things that he says is, we're not just talking about the saints and the raised up canonized people, but we're literally talking about the saints next door, yeah. the people who are near to us, who are neighbors to us, who are both able to show us examples of holiness, but are also objects of our own expressions of holiness. Yeah, that's right. That's that's a very striking subsection where he, he the title of that is, I think, literally the saints next door. Yeah. I really appreciated it because it resonated with, for instance, his address to the joint session of Congress back in September 2015, where the four people he named 
two of whom aren't even Roman Catholic. And all four of them, none of them are canonical saints, you know, kind of big S saints, though the cause for Dorothy Day has been opened. And people always hint around Thomas Merton's, though I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And so you had Martin Luther King, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Dorothy Day, and Thomas Merton. And these were the, the exemplars. Now, there are American canonized saints. I mean, there's you know, Mother Cabrini, there's John Neumann, there's uh, Kateri Tikawitha, there Elizabeth Ann Seton, Unipero Sarah, and so forth. There are plenty of people he could have pointed to. And so I think this is consistent with his understanding of sanctity, which isn't something made from whole cloth. This is not new. Truly, nothing that Pope Francis is doing is new at its core. And what I mean by that is he's reiterating, he does several times throughout the text, the core tenet of the church's dogmatic constitution on the church, on itself, Lumen Gentium from Vatican II, in which there is a clear explanation that every person by virtue of their baptism is called to holiness. It's the so-called universal call to holiness. I think Pope Francis does a beautiful job really fleshing that out. Okay, so we know this, right? The church teaches that everybody's called to holiness, everybody's called to be a saint and so forth, but what does that look like in practice? Well, if I can quote paragraph 19 very succinctly, I think is the beacon of what you're saying. A Christian cannot think of his or her mission on earth without seeing it as a path of holiness, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And he mentions Thessalonians. Each saint is a mission, planned by the Father to reflect and embody at a specific moment in history a certain aspect of the gospel. Now, what I love about that paragraph is that that is a shout-out to our Calvinist friends. That's a shout-out in some way to our Methodist friends. And it's a shout-out to the whole Catholic notion of every person having a vocation. So it's a very universal statement that's being made here, one that I would hope that a lot of Christians across the spectrum, both Protestant and Catholic, could embrace and feel emboldened by. And if I can bring it back to somebody we mentioned at the outset of the episode, Thomas Merton, he famously wrote in his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, that what it means to be a saint is to be myself. And what he means by that is that we're not necessarily holy just by virtue of hanging around or doing as we please. Rather, our striving to become our true selves or to live up to that who God has created us to be is what it means to be a saint. And it's not a universal pattern. And Pope Francis does highlight that as, you know, you gave that, that quote that gives a kind of overarching view. But he goes down into the weeds and says, you know, we don't need another St. Francis of Assisi and we don't need another, you know, pick your saint. We need each man and woman, each child in their own context to strive after a deeper relationship with God and one another and all of creation in a way that is fitting for that time and place. So I think it's it's really striking to see both the real kind of pragmatic articulation about what holiness looks like and what it means, but also this kind of consistency. There's something really exciting about bringing forward the teaching of the church that gets oftentimes overlooked when we put saints on pedestals. Well, and this is Pauline, too, because it's the very notion that we're all members of the body and we all have different, you know, I'm kind of the spleen sometimes, but otherwise. I know, and thou shalt not say that I am a spleen and I am not a foot and therefore I am less in the body or something. <laughs> something believe, like that. I believe that's what Paul said. So one of the things that also is notable about this is the way in which Pope Francis is talking about the political expression of holiness and that's really what began to bring the dust up with some of the more, and again, I'm scare quoting traditionalist readers of this. So in the wake of our conversation a couple of episodes back about the youth synod that's coming up, I started to follow Katie Prejean-McGrady on Twitter. And 
almost immediately noticed that she was being called out by traditionalists for not talking about the extraordinary right and all these sorts of things in, in the statement. Yeah. And they were they were calling her on the carpet for all the ways that she didn't kowtow to traditionalist sentiments. Air and, quotes. I, I, I have to jump in because I really, really resist. I know you're not doing this. This yeah. is a, They're self-described, self, right. self-titled traditionalists. Yeah. To be traditional means to follow the tradition and newsflash. The 1962 Latin... Uh, liturgy uh, or the the older Tridentine rite is only 400 years old in a 2,000 year old church. Mm. If you want a traditional liturgy, then you you celebrate the rite of uh, that that was promulgated with Sacrosanctum Concilium because that was with the best scholarship going back to the sources, back to uh, the early liturgical traditions. That is traditional, and so I'm, I'm, I don't mean to shoot the messenger, David. I'm just for our listeners. Yeah. I, I'm I get very worked up about this because people throw this around. They'll say, "Well, I'm traditional." No, you're not. I'm traditional as well. And one thing I like to say sometimes is, you may be traditional, but I prefer to be faithful. Faithful to the tradition of the church. So it's true, thanks to Benedict XVI, and it, it was a very contested and, and, and a compromised sort of move in his motu proprio to allow for quite literally the extraordinary form. It is not the ordinary traditional form. It is this kind of you know, pet peeve project, and it's not to denigrate the liturgy because it, it served its place in time. And historians like our friend of the podcast, uh, Father Gil Ostick, could give us the, the deeper explanation here. But I had to jump in because I, it infuriates me. And Katie and others, I, I myself get shouted at by these folks, sometimes even in person. So you were saying, my apologies. Well, and, and I was going to use that as a way of pivoting into this because oftentimes in the culture wars of Catholicism, you know, those of us who are seamless garment Catholics get called on the carpet by these, and again, I'm scare quoting traditionalist Catholics because we don't hold abortion as the one holy battle cry. And one of the things that also impressed me about this document is the fact that Pope Francis sort of calls that right on its face and says, you know, taking care of the poor, taking care of the immigrant, taking care of those who are least among us is just as important as taking care of the unborn. And taking care of the unborn is incredibly important. Yeah. yeah. But all of these other things are important, too. What struck me is that this is, in many ways, a seamless garment document. Oh, it is. You know, if I had one, and I only have one critique of the document itself. It's not even a critique. It's a disappointment that he didn't cite the late Cardinal Joseph Bernadine in the document. You know, he does some tremendous stuff citing the Bishop's Conference in New Zealand, citing as he always does conferences and their documents around the world. But, you know, that that by name doesn't appear, but in fact is what Bernadine called uh, the seamless garment, what we can call the consistent ethic of life. And it does upset people. And, and I don't understand that because no one is denying the place of the unborn in a consistent ethic of life. It's from, as they say, conception to natural death and everybody in between. I will say that, you know, it's upset some of those folks there, but I think Pope Francis does a pretty good job maybe ruffling the feathers of what we might say are people on both sides of the ecclesial aisle, if we can use a political analogy. One thing that he talks a lot about, you know, on the one hand is promoting very clearly, and, and he's not, a, this isn't new, St. John Paul II promoted a consistent ethic of life too, though people forget about that, talking about 
things like capital punishment and so forth as evils, structural evils. But he also talks about things like the notion of spiritual warfare, which is a, a popular kind of spiritual and, and, and kind of ascetical practice and worldview that's popular with some of these so-called traditional Catholics and, and, and the rest. Now, their understanding of that is very different. What he does is he takes this tradition of spiritual warfare and he says, you know, what I mean by this is it's not a one-time shot. We are constantly struggling for holiness in our whole lives. We're struggling. And he says that, you know, evil is real. He says the devil is real. If you want to dismiss evil in the world and sin and temptation as just kind of fairy tale, then then you're in big trouble. And so I think these kinds of things balance out the document really, really well. And it's all in keeping with theology of the church and its history. I, I think it's extraordinary. I'm a fan of, of some of the doctors of the church, and in particular, St. Therese of the Little Flower. And even though she's not explicitly quoted here, I see sort of St. Therese moments, in particular, paragraph 143. Such experiences, however, are neither the most frequent nor the most important. The common life, whether in the family, the parish, the religious community, or any other, is made up of small, everyday things. This was true of the holy community formed by Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, which reflected in an exemplary way the beauty of the Trinitarian communion. It was also true of the life that Jesus shared with his disciples and ordinary people. Again, what I love about this is it's saying in the simple ways you interact with each other, in the simple ways that you interact with people that you pass on the street, there are opportunities here to act in ways that will reflect and increase holiness. It's what Carl Rahner talks about, too, in, everyday, in the notion of everyday mysticism, as well as connecting what he would call that transcendental yes to God in the categorical experience of our everyday life. We can only, you know, it's that unity of the love of God and love of neighbor. You know, we can't claim to love God if we don't love one another and we don't control who we meet. Okay, two things to wrap up since you're a theologian and I'm a theologian. Dan, do you have to be a theologian in order to read and understand this document? No. Why not? because it's so well-written and it's accessible and it's pretty straightforward. I actually think it's something that all theologians and all non-theologians should read because it's great spiritual reading. I mean, it's the Easter season. We're in the, in the period of mystagogy, of reflecting on the faith and going deeper into it. I say read the whole thing through once and then go back in little sections, a paragraph here, a small section there. It's beautiful. It's truly a, a kind of a poetically written document. And then finally, to conclude, how do you as a theologian think that this document is going to be received by the church and by history? I think extraordinarily well. It's hard to say how it's put into practice. As a theologian, I'm already thinking about ways to engage it in application and in study. So time, time will tell, but my sense is that this is one of those things where you don't have to wait for somebody to process it, as you might with somebody like John Paul II's documents that were pretty dense and philosophical and not particularly well written or translated. And so you really needed people to kind of, theologians and pastors, to chew it over and then kind of make it more accessible. Here you go, you go straight to the source. Pope Francis makes it available to everybody straight off. All right. Well, with that, we're going to wrap up this particular section. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you.
Hello, and welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. David, it has been quite a year. Oh, God. And it has been quite a week. Yes. And it has been quite a day. (laughs) Minute by minute, things are speeding up. Things are getting confrontational. Things are getting chaotic. And I am talking about here in Les Estados Unidos or Los Estados Unidos or the United States. Very fine people, Dan. Yes, on both sides. (laughs) And so on a more serious note, we are in a time of real stress and anxiety for both practical and at times more tacit reasons. It's just kind of in the air. There's a lot of uncertainty. And we see this kind of ramped up in some moves exercised by the Justice Department as it pertains to President Trump and his associates. So we already know about Michael Flynn's plea deal and admittance of guilt in crimes. We know about the charges against people like Paul Manafort. The latest incident has been the raid of Michael Cohen, one of President Trump's personal attorneys of his hotel room, his apartment, and his office, and the seizure of numerous documents. This is incredibly serious, in some ways unprecedented or very, very rare, and we can talk about why that is. The threshold to do something like this is so high and has overcome a number of hurdles, including judges and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein himself. So, David, tell us a little bit more about what is going on. Well, and and this is going to be a pivot to a broader conversation. But first of all, it wasn't just documents, but it was also tapes. So actual transcriptions of conversations on tape. And something that needs to be clarified here, because a lot of people, when this initially happened, started talking about, well, what about attorney-client privilege? If fraud or crime has been committed, attorney-client privilege is abrogated. Yeah, I've got... Can I, can I just Please, jump in here? Yeah. I would like to recommend a television program called Better Call Saul. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a spinoff of Breaking Bad, another program I recommend. And if you want to see how this actually works, that fictional illustration is case in point. Just because you're a lawyer or have a lawyer does not mean you can be complicit and cooperate in a crime. You're yeah. still a criminal. Yeah. It, go D- ahead. Dan is not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. Full disclosure. The people on Better Call Saul are not lawyers but they play them on TV. That's true. And I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. <laughs> but this, but where this, I mean, one place where this played out was the Bernie Madoff scandal because the very first thing when the sons of Bernie Madoff found out about what was happening and what Bernie was doing, they went and they talked to their lawyer about what they could do to basically CYA. And the lawyer, good for him, immediately said, we need to stop this conversation right now because the next thing that I need to do is I need to call the authorities because you have just disclosed a fraud to me. And so, I mean, you don't have a magical cone of protection if someone is an attorney. You still can't break the law. And and you also don't have a magical cone of protection, as you put it. If you're the president of the United States, you're not above the law. And so there's been some reports lately that Donald Trump has talked about maybe firing certain people and then claiming retroactively executive privilege, which would be something analogous to attorney-client privilege. It's it's preposterous. No, you can't you can't claim that if you are cooperating in the exercise of a crime. Well, and the thing that I want to sort of broaden this out to is the very concept of the rule of law. Now, Catholicism has not historically always had the best relationship with democracy. It has not always had the best relationship with independent governments. 
Nevertheless, it has learned lessons and has made great strides in the last two centuries to make peace and to actually recognize that people who are made in the image of God deserve dignity and they deserve to have regularity and equanimity in their lives. And one of the places where that begins is with orderly society, a society that is regulated by laws that apply equally to everyone. And you can find that in the catechism. You can find that in various papal documents. You find it in the opening canons of the code of yeah, canon law. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's whether or not in our history, the Catholics have always abided by that. Nevertheless, if we're talking about contemporary Catholicism, we're talking about a religion that recognizes the rule of law. And so when we see practitioners in our civil society who want to either de facto or de jure place themselves above the law or place themselves above what should apply to everyone, that's a problematic moment and one that needs to be called out by people of faith. Yeah, I think that's right. So let's just talk a little bit about this particular raid because this has been raised as a turning point. We can bring it back around to what this might have to say in terms of people of faith and how people should respond. Care to talk a little bit about the case itself? The case itself involves a variety of charges, and unfortunately, we don't know yet what the charges are because they've been redacted in the documents that have been released, at least as of the latest that I was able to find today. So we don't yet know exactly what the explicit charges are, but we can say some things generally. Justice Department officials are very hesitant to go after attorneys unless there is a high bar. There's a preponderance of evidence that has been passed. And so this is beyond just simply reasonable doubt. It is beyond just simply convincing a grand jury. It's almost to the point where you can expect that they have what would be tantamount to an open and shut case. Now, what that means for those who are the clients of this attorney, like Donald Trump, It's pure speculation. But at the very least, it seems as if there are criminal charges that will be pending against Michael Cohen and that he will be going to jail. Or, I mean, that is the way that this thing is trending right now. No, that's right. And and there are a couple things that we do know, for instance. So bank fraud, which is a very broad category of, of the uh, judicial code that can include a number of things. The one that's been speculated most by legal reporters is that uh, in the payment to pornographic actress Stormy Daniels, that is Stephanie Clifford, that Michael Cohen, it seems, may have taken out a bank loan for the $130,000 that he paid her for hush money. And the question is, what did he say to the bank that that money was for? Did he say, I'm going to buy a pair of jet skis or something like this? Did he lying to the bank and taking out such a significant amount of money is one kind of bank fraud. So that's kind of a low hanging fruit there. But it seems to go much, much deeper than that. Now, it is interesting in terms of protecting attorney client privilege, the Justice Department does have a number of kind of fail safe. So if it's okay, I'd like to talk about two of these. One is the means to acquire, as you mentioned, a second ago, David, the the warrant itself. So in addition to going to a judge, they had to convince that is the Justice Department. And by the way, this is not Bob Mueller's team. Right, exactly. That's the point I was going to make. Yeah, Yeah, that it seems like something has come up in their investigation that signaled to this. But Bob Mueller, simply as is his responsibility, alerted the judicial officials in the Southern District of New York, the federal attorney's office, to pursue this. And they were the ones then who built the case and applied for the warrant. And it had to have been so 
damning, as it were. The, the evidence had to be so clear that it convinced a judge at the first level of threshold, we might say, to grant the warrant. And then this was signed off in terms of the Justice Department by the deputy attorney general himself, uh, who is a Trump appointee, Rod Rosenstein. Well, and Rod Rosenstein plays into this because when we had Ken Starr as the special prosecutor who was looking into the Clintons, basically under Janet Reno, everything that pertained to the Clintons in a great sprawl accrued to Ken Starr. And so he became basically the locus of all information about any criminal activity across a broad spectrum. What we're seeing here is a very different approach by Bob Mueller, and I think that that's partly due to Rosenstein's experience in the Ken Starr investigation. When Mueller is doing things in his own purview that has been laid out for him, he is very dogged and very methodical. This fell outside of his purview, and so he turned it over. To the right authorities. And one of the things that I love about that is that that begins to dissipate the blame. It's no longer, oh, Mueller has a vendetta against Trump. It's, no, there is a law here, and regardless of whether you're a Trump appointee or not, as some of these people in the Justice Department are— they recognize that they have a neutral responsibility to uphold the law. Yeah, that's right. So that's on the front end. On the back end of things, the Justice Department sets up a kind of, we might say, second tier group of investigators who go through those confidential documents between the attorney and his or her clients to determine what should or ought to be presented as possibly admissible. And there they would kind of be the screening, the confidential screeners of the material to see if there are, in fact, crimes underway or collaboration or what's the word that's escaping me? Collusion. Oh, that's the word. <laughs> Collusion in, in exercising crime. Collusion and or conspiracy. Conspiracy is the legal term. Yeah. And so another thing that we need to name, too, in talking about this is that President Trump, in one of his meltdowns, which is deeply disturbing in its own right, was claiming that the FBI, quote, raided his lawyer's office. That's not true. They went through the very painstaking and very high-barred process of getting a warrant, and this is not some kind of random thing. This is this is very, very serious, and, and if I were part of the current presidential administration, I'd be deeply concerned. Let's broaden this out in the last couple of minutes of this segment. We could think about, you know, our leftist, our lefty friends, our liberal friends sort of saying that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing right now is that even though things may be going awry and crazy and maybe falling apart at the seams, there are also democratic mechanisms. There are republic mechanisms. There are institutions in our country which seem to still be working. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And that's, I mean, that is a wonderful thing to recognize. It's also important to recognize that these things are vivified by our participation. And so as we are seeing these things unfold, we need to be getting on the phone and talking to our representatives. We need to be getting on the phone and talking to our neighbors. And we need to be showing up and we need to be, we need to be speaking up, particularly for the least of these among us particularly when we're not just talking about a porn star, but we're talking about members of our community who may be otherwise invisible and are very vulnerable, who are now feeling like, for whatever reason, they are under threat. Yeah, and it's not just a partisan issue. I mean, it can seem that way at times. This brings to mind the the testimony of Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook before uh, both the Senate and the House this past week. And he's in a really difficult place. And I've, I've heard a lot of very intelligent political commentators note this, that 
they're trying to create in the age of fake news and all of the kind of deployment of this propaganda by the by the uh, Russians trying to come up with mechanisms to screen out things that are untrue that are un, that are fake news that are propagandish and the rest and what happens in the process is to create that kind of mechanism doesn't have the same effect on both sides of the US political aisle on the one hand he's trying to avoid looking like he's there's a liberal bias within facebook that how come you know all these Republican affiliated or leaning or more conservative leaning news stories and blogs and personalities and stuff are getting shut down or cut out. And and it's not the same on the left, for instance, to which the, the honest truth is, well, because those are the ones that are producing the fake news by and large. And they're not alone. There are on the left. There's wacko stuff out there, too. But by and large, that's where the conspiracy theorists and the propagandists and stuff lie. You know, he's really damned all around. And this is a very tricky thing for people in this age where we're talking about privacy and personal rights and well-ordered society, as you put it. Well, and to any tankies or Fifth International Posadists who may be listening to the program, Dan did not mean to sort of call you out on the left and say that you were kooks, but you are. So there you go. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so the Posadists are the people that believe that in, for full Marxism to come, we have to talk to the dolphins. Oh. Yeah. Oh, so well, that's that may be for a bonus segment sometime. Yeah. Who did they back in the 2016 election? That's a very good question. <laughs> Let's ask Julian Assange. <laughs> but so I think, you know, this, this is a really tricky thing that it's easy sometimes if we're looking through partisan lenses to see things like Facebook, to see the actions of the Justice Department against somebody like Michael Cohen and others as simply political, but sometimes there are things that are actually not necessarily apolitical, but just of a different realm. Mm. And I liked what you said earlier about as Christians, we maintain the right that people have by virtue of their human dignity and value to live in a well-ordered society, as I often say, quoting the church's teaching on social justice and ethics, that the primary purpose, the sole purpose really of government is the promotion and protection of the common good. And so we should be concerned about this. I think things like Facebook privacy issues, things like the way that news is is produced, how it gets conflated at times with entertainment, how advertising plays a role in this, how campaign financing plays a role in this and so forth. These are all things that touch on a Christian life. Well, and as Catholics, we believe in an embodied faith. And so, yes, God is Lord of all. And yes, God will be all in all. And eventually every tongue shall confess and every knee shall bow. But in the meantime, we are called with our bodies to be involved in the world. And this goes back to the discussion from the last segment on holiness. There are little simple ways that you can be involved in helping to make our society more just and more equitable, more welcoming. And the ways in which we can be encouraging each other to do these things are very important. So be of good cheer and make sure that as you are going forth, you are trying to embody that example that we were given, a God who would even go to the cross for those who would despise him. That is a wonderful example to follow. And if we're able to follow that example politically, if we're able to find a way to live that in our political life so that the least of these among us are welcomed and are made to feel safe, we are doing something right. That's a great place to end here, David. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the Francis Effect podcast. <laughs> Hello. 
This is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt. I'm here with my friend Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks on our program, we get together to discuss issues of politics and culture through a lens informed by our Catholic faith. So, Dan, this is our 16th episode. It is the end of our second season I just want to say, first of all, thank you. I continue to have a blast doing this with you. And the more that we get a chance to talk to one another, the more that our friendship grows. I am really blessed by you, but I'm also blessed by all of the listeners and Twitter followers and commenters and all the people that you have brought into my life as a result of this friendship and these conversations. So thank you. As they say in Spanish, igualmente. Okay. But I think our listeners are, don't realize how literal you're being, that you're blessed by me because I always come in here with an aspergillum and just spray holy water <laughs> on all the equipment. And David tolerates it, even though I'm ruining thousands of dollars worth of studio audio equipment because it's a blessing. That's a, that's a mental image right there. So now that we've been doing this, I wonder, first of all, I kind of pitched this to you over lunch, I guess, maybe about nine, ten months ago, and you took the leap. Now that we're way into this, how are you feeling? Is this still working for you? David, not a day goes by that I re- I don't regret this. <laughs> I don't wish I had uh, run away screaming, screaming, Is screaming. that true? Is that It's real? not true okay. at all. Okay. No, no. I'm likewise very enthused by this project. I enjoy it. I en- I've enjoyed getting to know you better, to have conversations about, I think, important matters. I, too, have been really edified by the feedback we get from people. I shared uh, a few episodes back about the experience of being in L.A. Congress and, and having people know the show, know about it, come up to me and, and express their gratitude for it. We get emails, we get the, the interwebs, the social media and the rest. No, it's 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 very exciting. You know, I think we, yeah, I don't think this is an opportunity for us necessarily to dislocate our shoulders, patting ourselves on the back. Right. I mean, I don't think that's the purpose. But I mean, looking back on, on the last 16 episodes, the last two seasons in, 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 in kind of podcast year one, I think we've grown. We've been able to bring various voices to our program, and I know that's a priority we both share and something that we both value so much. Last episode, we had Dr. Jessica Koblenz. We've had... You know, so many other theologians and and journalists, uh, experts in their field who've come and graciously spoken with us and and shared uh, some information, had some conversation. And and I know that's something we're, as we look down the road at season three, we definitely will continue and will make a priority. I think, you know, aiming to include as many different perspectives uh, Mm -hmm. from people's different backgrounds and contexts is a priority for us. And so, yeah, we're grateful if that's something that you've appreciated as well, you know, by all means, please let us know. 
I think one thing looking forward, I've shared this, uh, I shared this, I think, at the end of the last season or the beginning of this one as we were kind of doing a, a pre-cap or a recap somewhere along the way, is that I also hear a lot that people would love a weekly program. And I know that's something you and I both aspire to as well and, and we're open to. Uh, this is not necessarily time to take out our begging basket. It, it is a, a point to maybe twofold. One, to thank those who do make this show so possible, the uh, patrons on Patreon, our, our corporate sponsors, and and uh, the people who randomly slip dollar bills underneath your studio door. Just kidding. <laughs> Nobody does that, but you're most welcome to do that. You know, And on the other hand, it, it's very costly to run a podcast. I mean, people don't realize, I shouldn't say people, like everybody. Um, I think some people do realize it well. But you may not know that it's, it's very costly. It costs a lot of money to host, though it's podcasts are generally free to the listeners. Their production, their editing, the hosting, the bandwidth, the delivery, all that stuff adds up on a monthly basis. So we have been very blessed, very fortunate to receive the kind of support we need to bring eight episodes a season, 16 episodes, roughly an academic year. And I think we're on par to continue that certainly into the fall. But, you know, I think we, we still hope that, you know, spread the word. You know, you may not be able to contribute financially to help us move it to a weekly program, but spread the word. Share us. Um, share us. <laughs> do the thing that you do on the internets. Yes. Well, and to talk about the thing that you do on the internets, one of the things that I have appreciated the most about this is, you know, I, I am a political person. I like to think about politics. My wife and I listen to political programs over the weekends, and we have long discussions. But one of the things that I don't often hear and don't often get a chance to do is to speak publicly as a Catholic. And the times when I've had the opportunity, and there was a couple times in Memphis when I was a professor that I, I was invited by parishes to come and speak, and I always found those interactions to be very fruitful. And I love being Catholic. I love the ways in which my Catholicism and my faith informs the way that I think about politics and the way that the world should be ordered. I don't ever want to be a jerk about it, but I do have positions. And this has given me an opportunity both to well, let me take a step back. In my other show, Things Not Seen, I am very cautious a lot of times to keep myself out of the conversation in terms of a, the interaction because the whole ethos of that program is not to create gotcha moments or to create antagonism. It's to elicit... The, Unlike this podcast, well, no. which the entire purpose is to catch each of us off guard. No, no, no. <laughs> but Things Not Seen is designed to give this guest a forum that is hospitable and welcoming to talk about how faith animates their lives. And I'm trying to get at that. Because of that, I don't have opportunities and I don't take opportunities to stand on a soapbox and to start talking about Dalt's position. Here on the show, we have found spaces for both of us to take, I think, pretty principled stands. And sometimes those stands don't always mesh up. And when we have had those moments, you've pushed back and I've had a chance to push back. I have found that especially to be very helpful to me. I've grown as a Catholic from these conversations. I've also grown as a political person from these conversations. And from the guests that we're bringing in, I hope that we continue to bring in people of color, people who are on the margins, people who are vulnerable. Those are the voices that I want to be hearing from and listening to. And those are the voices that I want to be informed by on this program as we move forward. I'm very excited at the possibilities of that. Yeah, I am too. I think I couldn't agree more. I think there's also been, and it'd be interesting, you know, listeners tweet at us or, or send us a note, let us know, comment on Facebook if, if this has been your experience too. But my impression is, as one half of this program, is that 
we have a certain kind of rapport. We've gotten to know each other over the course of these 16 episodes and to have a kind of kind of connection. And so I'm excited to see where that goes in season three as well, where I remember when you first pitched the idea to me, you gave me kind of three or four kind of templates in, in terms of excellent podcasts that were already available in other fields and and how the kind of dynamism of those respective programs worked and and kind of envisioned you know what might it look like for us to do something about Catholicism about theology about current events about politics that would bring all these things together in that sort of way and I feel like we're achieving that we're we're moving in that direction and so that's one thing too I I also value like you as a theologian, as, as, a, as a professor, as somebody who's often invited to speak in official capacities, uh, my students would be the first to point out, I'm not at all hesitant to make jokes that are not funny. <laughs> I should say, I think they're funny, <laughs> but nobody gets or cares about, or correct me if I'm wrong, my perception of myself anyways is that I'm not a particularly stuffy or reserved person, even in, in more formal venues. I like to think of myself as a very respectful person and, and somebody who respects others. But here, I think there's an opportunity to be more informal, even more informal, where we can talk about things we're passionate about, like you've said. You know, we've talked about various things, things that I'm really excited about, things you're really excited about, you know, illustrated best, I think, so far this past season by the mutual SCOTUS fandom <laughs> of the Supreme Court of the United States on one hand and John Dunn SCOTUS on the other. I love that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's exciting. I mean, I'm eager to hear from listeners, what do you look forward to? What do you think would improve the program? Um, do you like the way things are going? I mean, we do appreciate the feedback. Well, and the times on Twitter when I have been going through my feed and suddenly I see that one of the people who's listening is shouting out to us or we hit something that really resonated with them and they felt emboldened or they felt supported, that means a lot to me because it means that not only people are listening, yay ego, but people are being benefited by what we're doing. And that's really where I want this to continue to go. Yeah. And at the risk of, you know, I told you I don't want us to dislocate our shoulders. Right, exactly. In the back. Yay but, us, whatever. But I think it's important for our listeners to know, too, that we, we hear you. I, I received an email. I haven't even had a chance yet to tell you that somebody contacted me through my website. They had seen me in an interview or a conversation on another YouTube channel and then found, I don't, I don't remember, there were a couple different steps and kind of traced the way to the Francis Effect podcast and listened, just so happened to listen to the episode or one of the episodes where we were talking about um, the church's teaching and questions around same-sex marriage mm. and this, these sorts of things. And, and this gentleman shared with me that, you know, he's been in a long-term committed relationship with his now, you know, legal husband for more than 25 years and couldn't conceive of the day where he'd be able to listen to a Catholic priest, but also Catholics, Catholic theologians talking seriously about, you know, some of the concerns that are nearest and dearest to his life and heart. And so it was it was very moving. And, and I share that because we, we also get a lot of negative feedback, too. People don't like that. Um, but it's it does it does matter. And so uh, I, for one, am very grateful for those who do, you know, take the time to tweet or to reach out or to shoot an email or something, because that that affirms what I think David and I both feel that on the one hand, you know, we do this because we enjoy it, uh, much like I tell jokes in class because I enjoy it. But more than the jokes in class and more than just enjoying it, we do it because we think this is important. One of the things that really sold me when David first pitched this to me now 16 episodes ago, months and months ago, almost a year ago, is that there really is no formatted program quite this style that 
isn't, I don't know how else to put it, kind of politically aligned, maybe a self-styled Catholic program, quote unquote, but but very deeply politically aligned with a uh, U.S. Republican worldview. And uh, that is definitely not the positions that we occupy. They're complex political and ecclesial positions, but but there was nothing quite like this to our knowledge. And, and so for that, I'm grateful. For So thank you for that. Well, and that being said, we talk sometimes like experts. We're not political experts, but we're willing to give it a shot. But let me also say we're not journalists, and that's an important piece too. We're theologians, and we're doing our best to try and navigate as theologians and as people of faith in a complex political landscape. But that being said, if you do like what we do, there are a lot of really great journalists out there. I'm thinking about, you know, Matthew Sittman and Michael O'Loughlin and Emily McFarlane Miller and Emma Green and Heidi Schlumpf, uh, Manya Poshman, and all just people who are on the religion beat. And if you don't know these people, if you don't know about the Religion News Association, if you don't know about the Religion Communicators Council, if you don't know about the L.A. Congress, you know, of religion educators, seek these things out and start listening to these people because there are people out there doing really great work trying to bring the faith question and the political question together, and they're worthy of your time. I mean, we're thankful that you listen to us, but there's a lot of other great people to be reading and listening to as well is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, David, so let me ask you this. What are your top three hopes for season three since it's season three i'll give you three uh sure more guests that would i would love that and particularly women people of color people who are not two white guys that would be really we've important. got enough of that already yeah we've got enough of so that much, already there's so much two two white guys in this room too yeah i also i think that we're getting to the point where we might be able this is point number two to perhaps try and and gently engage some of those who are on the more traditionalist, again, scare quoting, conservative bent, there are some people like, like at some point, if we could get, you know, Russ Dowlett as a as a conversation partner, that would be a goal or E.J. Dion or somebody, just people who don't necessarily align with us completely politically, but who I think we could manage to have a pretty good conversation with around the question of faith as it's trying to be lived in political life. Because I, I have no doubt that there are people out there who are deeply faithful Catholics with whom I disagree with politically very deeply, with whom we could have really excellent conversations. So that's number two. And number three, we need T-shirts or mugs. Oh, merch. <laughs> that's number three. Wow. You heard it first. And I also heard it with you. <laughs> this is the first I've heard of it. Stay tuned for merch. I like those three. In uh, on the second point, you know about more guests from kind of differing views. I'm reminded of something I saw tweeted just this afternoon at a conference taking place at Villanova University commemorating Pope Francis's five years as Bishop of Rome, and it's by the former. Uh, he's a theologian, but former East African provincial Father uh, Arorbator, who apparently said something about you know those who criticize Pope Francis do so, we must hold because they they love the church too. They may be misguided, they may be wrong, but they do it out of a place of love. At least that's that's what we should presume. So I think that's that's an important, I, I really pause, it, it gave me pause to think about that because I think it's easy in our society to demonize others and, and, and people may very well be wrong, but what is the most Christian way to respond to them? 
So I'll, I'll be thinking about that. And I think that that's right. That gives us, you know, additional reason to uh, have those kinds of conversations. And I'm not talking about an all-commerce policy. I mean, I know that there are some that we would not have productive conversations with, and I'm not saying that we're going to open the gates and, no. and, and have all all manner of conversations, because I don't think some of those conversations would be Christ-like or productive. But I think that there are ways in which we can further and grow and we can we can honor the kingdom by exactly what you said, by recognizing the dignity and the genuine desire for love of the church that is reflected in some of the people with whom we might disagree. With that, probably this is a good place to just, first of all, say to all of our listeners, thank you. This has been a pleasure and an honor for me. And I, I hope I'm speaking for Dan. I'm sure that I am. Sure are. To, to say that, you know, be able to bring these conversations to you, to be able to bring these conversations to you has been a wonderful joy for us. We're so thankful that you are listening and we hope that you will continue to. We look forward to being back with you next fall. In the meantime, if you're a Patreon supporter, we're going to be coming back at least once a month for some special things that will be there on the Patreon feed. So it will be possible to keep listening to us even after this season is over and before the next season starts. But oh, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we almost it almost slipped by that if you're a patreon supporter yeah there's gonna be a mini season of sorts yeah stay tuned yeah but in the meantime thank you again and we will see you or you'll hear us in the fall the francis effect podcast is produced by sandberg media We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center dot O-R-G. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they are wonderful folks. And they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at FrancisFXPod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is FrancisFXPod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing FrancisEffectPod at gmail.com. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We've got a bunch of episodes, and you can check them out from our first season. And now this season, thank you for listening. That rocked. That was good. I, I didn't get one of my rants oh, in about it though. I didn't I'm realize sorry. it after the fact. Okay. No, no, I no, no, you're not no, you don't have to be sorry. I could have interrupted. Um maybe I can We can do that in the bonus. We can do a bonus rant. Bonus rant, yeah. You feel it you're feeling it now? We can do it right now. No, no, no. I'm just it's just one it was a one sentence thing. I okay. can live without it. Literally okay, say your sentence. We might be able to drop it in. I don't know how I'm going to feel. It's it's too uh, preposterous at this Go point. for it. I, I, but I'm, now I want to know what it is. Now I need to know the context. Yeah. No, my big issue, just, yeah. 
So, so just for the record, I need to say, as much as I love this document, I really do, and as much as I love my brothers in the Society of Jesus, I do not agree that it is an inherently Ignatian document. It cracks me up when I see these articles, uh, including at one of my former employers, America Magazine, great, great uh, group in America Media, wonderful uh, priests and, and, and writers and reporters. Um, but... He doesn't mention Ignatius Loyola at all in here, at least, you know, not explicitly. And sure, he's trained as a Jesuit. But you know who he mentions a lot? St. Bonaventure and St. Francis of Assisi. <laughs> it is a deeply Franciscan document. Um, and by the way, it was, it was Bonaventure who came up with imagination and prayer to begin with. But anyways, end of rant. I'm totally going to find a way to drop that in. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. Okay. Uh, do you want to top the next section? Uh, I do, yeah. And you could even put it in as like a fake ad or something like this. And we now interrupt this. <laughs> totally going to do that. Or or <laughs> as like, you know, bonus at the end. Not mm-hmm. bonus, true bonus, but like... Like a little... A little like blooper kind of thing? Exactly. Yeah. I think that that's... A coda. Yeah. A yeah. coda of kind. Okay. 